The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, just want you to know uh, if, if you need a Bible, we have them for free. Uh, they are in the uh, hospitality room back across the hall. So if you need a Bible, please let us know because we would really like to give you one. Uh, if right now you don't have something to follow along, the uh, scriptures will be on the screens here so everyone can follow along with us as we study God's Word. Uh, and so as we dive into God's Word today, we're going to encounter uh, some powerful truth about who God has made us to be and how He sees us. Um, the truth is, issue, issues surrounding identity and uh, how we see and understand ourselves have always been important. It's always been important to be aware of how we see ourselves, what we think about who we are. But these things are blazing hot topics in our current cultural landscape, the buzzword being identity, things around that. And so we're going to see a lot today about what God says he thinks and how he identifies those that belong to him. Uh, as we delve into this, we should take a moment to really assess how we each see ourselves. Uh, and, and, and understanding and, and having some ability to be introspective, how do I see who I am and what I am? What do I think about that? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when someone says, who are you? Uh, it'd be interesting then for you to compare as we read through this first portion of First Peter chapter 2, uh, compare how you see yourself with the descriptions that we're going to see uh, describing God's vision of identity for his people. And so that's where we're headed. Uh, let's keep in mind those ideas as we approach God's word. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 12 together. Therefore, he's tying that to everything he just said about the enduring nature of God's word, the beauty of the gospel, so he's continuing his thought process here. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Praise God for his word. As you can see, friends, we've got, uh, we've got work to do. So we're going to get through these 12 verses, and uh, God's going to be glorified, and I believe we're going to be changed by the power of his spirit. So let's come back to uh, the beginning here, back to verse 1. It says, uh, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Why? So that it, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Here's my question for you right off the bat. Obviously, uh, Peter, like many in his day, is a pictorial thinker, and so he's using analogy to help us understand. He doesn't just say, hey, um, read the word a lot and like it, right? So he tries to give this, this picture, and so he uses this idea of a baby desiring uh, milk, and right? So my question to you is, let, so let's, that's what's in his mind. Let's really think about it. Have you ever seen or heard a hungry baby. Anybody in here ever experienced that? Been in the room with a hungry baby? What, so how would you characterize that? I would say, uh, first of all, if they are hungry, and maybe have been for a minute, they are not playing. They are not playing games. They're about one singular focus. They have one thing on their mind, and they're going to let you know about it until you fix it, right? They're about that milk, that milk life, okay? They, they want it, and they're going to scream, they're going to holler. They are passionate about it. Uh, and they're going to they're going to chase after it. They're going to do whatever they got to do to get it. So, and, and you're not really going to convince them otherwise. When they're hungry for that milk, man, it's that's what's going to happen because the past fire won't do, and you ain't rocking them to sleep when they're hungry. Uh, they won't be satisfied with some other counterfeit. That's my point. You seeing what Peter's talking about here? You seeing how why he wants you to put yourself in the in the mindset of an infant? It sounds a little weird, but how much does a does an infant need and desire? That and, and, and what will uh, they, they do to get it, right? Uh, how forceful will they push? Very. Uh, it's all about getting some of that milk. So then the question is, so when we really put that grid over our own desire level for God's word, I'd say maybe, maybe at times it is, it is true of us, and I hope so, but maybe for some of us, it wouldn't be a, a real accurate description to describe our desire for the word as analogous or synonymous with uh, a newborn baby, how much it desires, needs, wants, and is going to pursue after uh, a bottle of milk, right? So what do we do then when we say, when we acknowledge that sometimes our desire for the word is not characterized by the same intensity with which a baby would be desiring milk? What do we do with that? Do we just get sad face and Eeyore about it? Or like, what's the response, right? How do we think about it? Well, and how do we get there? So if we acknowledge, maybe that's not always true for me, uh, but I want it to be, how, how are then are some ways to, to up the desire level we have, the hunger we have for God's word? Well, built into what he's said here, I think is a couple things to start with. So the first thing I would say, I think verses one and three like two is kind of the big premise, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. One and three kind of sandwich that thought process, and it's, it's 
It's telling us things that either could be in the way of that being true for us, um, or, or maybe something that is an indicator as it pertains to that. So let's, let's look at it. Verse 1, before he says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, what does he say first? Put aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Why does that go together? It doesn't totally seem like it does. Why does my desire for the word go, why is, why is me having a good desire for the word or, or a passionate desire for the word predicated on, why does his thought process first go to, okay, you got to put all this, side, this stuff aside or else probably, I think what he's saying is probably not, you're not going to have that kind of desire like a newborn baby does for milk for the word if these things are present. Do those go together? Is Peter just run, running out of stuff to say, so he's mashing things together, or is this a coherent flow of thought? I think it is. First of all, if you look at these things, uh, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, I think two ways where that group of things can be hurting our desire for the word, um, kind of getting in the way, right? So the, the first would be, I would say, um, the, the fact that if what makes you hungry, right? It, you you got to be empty to be hungry. And so part of the problem is I think a lot of times we are full <laughs> of all of this type of stuff, which really dampens our hunger and or thirst for the word of God. So where, how, where do we get things like this? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Um, I mean, I, if I turn on the news, normally the way I get news is the radio News, entertainment, all of the stuff, right? Social media. I mean, they could really, all of those things, those, those kind of entertainment venues, uh, and sometimes it's information gathering, but the reality is all of these things can be pretty aptly characterized in those, right? Malice. Are there, are there people always angry at somebody uh, when you're watching the news, when you're entertainment, whatever? It's, it's like things are always set up as there's, there's competing enemies and that's the way it's interesting or whatever. Uh, deceit. I mean, there's, there's people talking out of both sides of their mouth all over the place, hypocrisy, envy, and so we, we just get inundated with all of this stuff. And so I think a lot of times we're full of all of this junk from the world, and, and, and thus there's, we're not hungry. It's, it's the difference between eating vegetables and Cheetos, though, right? I mean, all of this stuff is not good for us. It ain't helping us. It's messing us up on the inside. It's hurting us. Um, not to pick on Cheetos if that's your favorite snack. I didn't, it's just what came to mind. So all of you Cheeto fans, forgive me. Uh, just, just the junk food in general, right? Uh, none of this is helpful. It's all damaging. The other way, though, that these things being in our, so sometimes it's us consuming these things or being inundated with this type of stuff. But secondly, it's when we participate in it directly. All of these things, when I read these, the, the word that comes to my mind is exhaustion. And have you ever been too tired to eat? I know we're Americans, so probably not, but reach back into your memory along at some point. I can say it's true for me. There's been times where it was like, I could go try to make something into something edible, or I could lay down and go to sleep, and I chose sleep because it, it needed to happen. And so, when I, but when I look at these words, they, 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 it, these things to me just bring exhaustion. So let's look at it again. Putting aside all malice. Malice, right? Like that, this, this anger all the time, right? And it's in our culture today, it's almost like um, righteousness is measured by how mad you get about stuff, right? It's almost like there's, there's a righteousness meter, uh, how outraged you are about whatever the issue of the day is, right? And so it's, it's almost like you're, you're rewarded socially for being mad all the time. 
Uh, and even if that wasn't the case, have you ever carried the weight of just anger and unforgiveness and bitterness towards somebody? That is, is very much like a stone uh, that you're carrying around, and it is, it is exhausting. Deceit. Can, is it hard for you to connect the dot between living a double life or not telling the truth or tr- hiding from people? I think deceit and hypocrisy kind of go together. Being dishonest, man, not walking in the light, that's exhausting. Always covering your tracks, always trying to have the mask on. It doesn't take long for you to get tired. Uh, Envy. How much time and energy have we spent? Again, I'm I'm not, listen, I think God established a time and places where we live. We live now, 2017, in the U.S. Social media is what it is. I think we can use it for redeemable purposes, but you got to be careful, man. How much time is spent doing life envy of other people's projected image of their life, right? Like, it's not even real. But envy, envy will wear you out, man, because you're just constantly, this constant comparison, uh, which hopefully the rest of what, what is said today will, will help you not uh, feel this, this compulsion and this need to compare yourself all the time. But envy will wear you out. Um, and slander, just always, all the time, people talking bad about somebody. Um, I don't know if you know anybody like that. There's some people that when I get around them, I just know I'm going to hear about this, that, and the other thing, and this person, and this organization, and this and that. And it's like, man, just, it's got to be exhausting to always be looking for something to, some smack to talk about, man. Like, give it a rest. Um, try edifying and, and talking positive about something. So I think the, the other way, the reason why Peter says all these things, put all these things away, <clears throat> then like a newborn baby desire this, the word of God like this milk, if either you're full of this stuff or you're just exhausted by this stuff, uh, it's going to really dampen your desire for the word. Um, it's it's going to choke it out. And so then he goes on to say, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so the whole thing we're answering is what what do we do? How do we approach? If, if I think about the way a newborn baby wants milk, if that is not a real good analogy for the way I desire the word of God, what do I do? Well, I think, first of all, acknowledging that there's an issue is, is good. Like, Lord, I probably should have a hunger for your word more than I do. Secondly, it's, <clears throat> it's identifying potential issues. So the first thing, what verse 1 said, but then also verse 3 says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so here's, here's the cold, hard truth. He says that because... If you have not tasted the kindness of the Lord, and, and by that, if, if you have not received the mercy of God by faith in Christ, you're not going to have any hunger for the word whatsoever. Um, and so that's not going to be a driving force for you. It's not going to be something you're drawn to. Um, and, you know, we're not in the business of making people question their salvation. That's unfruitful and unhelpful. However, uh, if, you, if that's you today, if you see this description of what for the Christian, that, that the word of God should be for us like milk is for a newborn baby, in, in terms of how much we see ourselves needing it, how much we desire it, if that's where you're at, uh, and there's just no desire whatsoever to dig into God's word, to, to read it, to feed upon it, then it's possible you haven't tasted the kindness of the Lord. Uh, I just want to say to watch out in your Bible, it's, it's really helpful, I think, that Peter and others use this type of sensory language to help us understand how to approach God. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, the literalist in the room, we could have an issue. So like if, 
If we catch you in a corner somewhere in the room, like licking your Bible pages, we're going to have to pull you off to the side and have a conversation because this tasting of the Lord's uh, kindness is, is not literal. There's, he's, trying, he's reaching at something in human terms to help us grasp how precious this really is. Um, we, we see it also, the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so you see here again, uh, Peter talks about milk for a newborn babe. The psalmist talks about the, the words of God literally are, are, are so beautiful and, and good to them that it's, it's, like, it's like honey on their lips, right? And for him, that would have been, you know, honey wasn't as prevalent. They didn't get as much sugar back then. So that honey was real sweet. It was the sweetest thing he could think of. That's why he said it. It was precious to him. And so is the word of God that for us? Uh, and this, this sensory language, uh, come taste and see that the Lord is good. You'll see that throughout the Bible. It, it, it speaks to this idea of experience. And so God does desire, and he is drawing us to not settle just for academic ascension or, or just kind of, okay, these are the facts about God, so now I know about God. God really desires for you to come taste and see, like come get close enough that, that you can really tell what I'm like. And so there's, there's an experience side to this thing that, that God desires. The question is, do we desire it? Um, and, and the overcorrection of that, right, there's, there's always a ditch, is to overemphasize and only seek after experience and then end up without the word as the anchor and then goofy stuff happens. So um, hallelujah, there's, there's a lot there. First three verses. So now that this, this brings us into, um, that gets us to verse four. So he says, and coming to him, so he's saying to us, we are coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, obviously he's talking about Jesus, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. In 1975, a gentleman by the name of Gary Dahl invented something called a pet rock. It was a rock in a little cardboard box with holes that looked like a pet carrier. It sold for about $4, and 5 million of them were sold. These are not the living stones that Peter's speaking of here. I just wanted to make sure everyone was clear on that. And I also realize how random that that pet rock example may seem to talk about right here, but I, I honestly, this is why I said it. I see it as a valuable tool for humbling the human race. We need to acknowledge the fact that somebody was able to stick a rock in a box and sell it to five million people. Well, they're dumb. You ain't no better. <laughs> We've all done something to the equivalency of that stupidity. Here we are. We need Jesus. That's the pet rock teaches me that humans need Jesus. Those rocks were not living, but Peter talks about Jesus here as a living stone. He talks about us as living stones. This, again, gets to this thing where sometimes people, uh, it's hard to sort out, right? Jesus says he's the light of the world, but then he says we're the light of the world. So who's the light of the world? Yes, right? Um, he is, and, and we are, and, and it's because of our connection to him. And this is very much the uh, same vein of thinking, right? Um, so... Uh, Aside from that dumb example, there's honestly, there's some, there's some beautiful truth for us here. First of all, we need to understand from this that uh, 
Because we also are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The first thing this shows us is that we desperately need the church to accomplish our mission. God has brought us together. Let's think about this for a second. What is this analogy? This, this is very close to what Paul is saying in Corinthians when he starts talking about us like a body. And Paul, I think, is a little more sarcastic than Peter. Uh, he seems to be making fun of us when he's talking about, well, does an eye get to say, I don't want to be an eye anymore and just jump out of the thing because it decides it wants to be a nose. And so really he's poking fun at us, sometimes the attitudes we get. But it's the same idea that, that God has brought something that was separated and not united and not about the same mission. He has brought uh, through his finished work on the cross, a people together uh, in, a, in a unified goal. And so uh, Paul uses a body analogy. Here, Peter says that, that Christ is this living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious. But then also we are living stones, and we're being built up as a spiritual house. And so uh, there's, there's something being done with us. And so if you think about what we are, if we are stones in the analogy... What, <laughs> what good can we do by ourselves is the question we need to ask. First of all, if, if you're just a stone out in the middle of the field by yourself, what, what can you accomplish? You can't, not a whole lot. You can make a divot in the ground, and that's about what you got going for you, <laughs> which, let's be honest, that's what some of us have accomplished uh, to some, with some parts of our life is make a divot in the ground and or a chair. Um, that was funnier than you act like it was. But here's the, here's the truth. We, we were dead unable to make a difference in, in really our life or anybody's life, unable to affect eternity. But God had to come along. First of all, we need him in the picture. That's first. Then we'll talk about why we need each other. But we need him to come pick us up and do something with us. We need him to come pick us up and say, I can do something with you. We need him to see the potential, pick us up, and infuse us with the living power to then come and be joined together with other stones. And, and you know, I don't know what God uses for mortar, but I have to imagine it's that, that mortar holding this spiritual house together, man, is blood red. The, the, the blood of Christ is what brings us, binds us together into this spiritual house being built for the glory of God, that acceptable sacrifices can come out of us as a collective so that God is glorified. I had a conversation this week with somebody, and they were talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm planning on getting back to church is, is the language they were using. And I'm like, well, that's that's awesome. That's good. I know I need it. Yes, you do. Uh, I said, man, let me just say this to you, and I'll be surprised if you haven't heard it before, but I want to remind you because I think we forget. I said to this guy, yes, I, I believe the Bible's very clear from these scriptures and many others that you will flourish, do best, and be able to best obey God in the context of being connected to a body of believers on mission, right? You aren't building a spiritual house by yourself. If you're a living stone by yourself, you might get lucky, catch a wind, and roll around, but that's all you're getting done. You need other stones, man. You need, so, you need to be brought together with others to make something useful for God. And so, uh, and, 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 and as it pertains to his mission, so I, I said, yes, I think you do need to be connected to God's church. However, you've you got to remember, too, man, the, the flip side of that. It's, it's also that the church is doing something, right? If, if we were just a country club that gathered together to you know, pat each other on the back and compare clothes each week, it wouldn't really matter if you're there and apart and connected and really like thinking of it in terms of I'm a part of this. It wouldn't matter that much, right? It just, 
who cares? But that's, that's not at all what the Bible describes the church of God is supposed to be doing. And that's what I, I hope desperately not what we're doing. They we're just gathering here, you know, saying hi to each other and then going to get tacos, right? Like I'm all about the tacos at the end, but there's something happening here that, that is, is far deeper and a part of something far bigger uh, than just a, a collective of people with similar interest gathering in a room. Uh, this is a part of, of what God is doing. Peter describes it as him taking living stones, binding them together and building them together into a spiritual house that then can offer acceptable sacrifices to God. And, and that's, that's going to be made more clear as we go down what those acceptable sacrifices are. Put a pin right there and remember. We're, he, he explains what that means as he goes farther. But I said to this guy, like, man, there, you know, I think I probably used the body analogy in this one, but if, 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 you're a, if, if Paul's right, and I assume he is, then when people out of laziness or uh, distraction or whatever the reason is just kind of disengage from the life of the church, you know, if whatever body part they're supposed to be, man, that body's missing. And so now it's handicapped and it's, it's, it, it matters. If you're a finger, man, now that body's got to try to figure out, do everything it's supposed to do without that finger or that toe or whatever that is, man. <clears throat> and, and that, that, so part of what's going to help us today is I think the devil's really good at getting us to believe we don't matter in the collective, right? Like, if I was not in there, my stone doesn't count. Well, God doesn't believe that, and so I don't want you to believe it, and I don't want to believe it myself. We need to see what God says about it, and I think it'll help us to think right about it, and also encourage others, because there are those, many times I talk to, that they don't think either the gift that God has put in them is useful, or that God has put a gift in them, um, and that's because Satan is in our ear all the time, saying it doesn't matter, they won't miss you. It's not, you know, because I, I really believe each Christian cares. I, I think if God has changed your heart from, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, if I think I really believe if, if the love of God has struck your frame in any way, if you've really tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, I really think you're gonna care, at least to some degree, about the mission of God, the spreading of the gospel. Um, what he's doing in the earth. But what Satan does is he's able to convince us that um, being together, living stones brought together so that this spiritual house can be built so then we can get done what it is God's called us to do. We're supposed to be a refuge for the broken and we're supposed to be a lighthouse, man. There's a lot of functions that this spiritual house has. One of them uh, is that there should be a continual fragrant offering of our lives being sacrificed for the sake of Jesus and his gospel constantly. And like I said, as we go down further, this, this fleshes itself out, but it matters. That's the bottom line. Whether or not you're here matters. Whether or not you actively think of yourself as a part of what God is doing matters. And every single person that decides they're going to do it solo because it's just too much trouble to mess with all the people, not only does that hurt them, but it hurts the church as well because I believe there's a place God has called each person that he is saved by grace, that he's extended his mercy to, to plug in, be a part. And clearly, uh, Peter believes that too. So you can, you can argue with me that's not that scary. I wouldn't argue with Peter about it, um, just me. I, I'd say he probably knows what he's talking about, kicking it with Jesus three years straight and all that. You know, so all right. Um, so he, he says this, and, and now he's going to quote the Old Testament to kind of back up his premise. He's laid on us this idea of us being a spiritual house. 
uh, living stones brought together for the purposes of God. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Come on, somebody. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Dear friend, a great question for us to ask every single day. I don't know what you do. Normally, when my eyes open, I just I, I, instinctively I thank the Lord for the day. I try to speak to him a minute. What I want to do, and in, in, in working through this, I, I really want to ask myself every single day, how precious is this cornerstone of Jesus to me? How precious is Jesus to me today? And let that thought, let that be the guide rails that help me make decisions about what I'm going to let slide out of my mouth gate, how I'm going to conduct myself, what thoughts I'm going to let my mind entertain, how precious is this king of glory to me, this cornerstone laid in Zion, is he precious to me? And if he's not, then I want to spend time praying and asking for the help of the Holy Spirit to remove whatever junk has blinded my eyes, because here's the truth. If I'm seeing right, he's precious. This is the most precious stone there's ever been, this perfectly hewn cornerstone set by God so that his church and his mission could be built upon it and never move. This precious value then is for you who believe. When you believe, when you really believe, Jesus is precious to you. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. First of all, we, we, we see from 4 through 8 that we need the church to accomplish our mission. We can't be um, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood by ourselves. You can't accomplish, you can't, I'm going I'm to go ahead and say this, and, and somebody might not like it. I, extenuating circumstances aside, the person who comes to faith through some tragic event, they're about to die. Obviously, we know God is merciful in situations like that. He was with the thief on the cross. But barring some situation like that, the normative pattern and, and the ability for somebody to... How, if you're supposed to be a living stone built into a spiritual house, how can you do that by yourself? So th that would be... I would just submit that to you as part of the thought process when somebody says, do I have to be... Normally, they say, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? That already tells me that there's probably nobody's taught them something really good about the church and what it actually is, right? Because you don't, that's not a place you go, it's a people you're a part of. And so even if they got that, if, if the question is, do I have to be a part of a church to be a Christian? I, I guess there's some sketchy outside circumstance chances where it works, but man, Peter seems to think what God's doing with us is as living stones building us together into a house so that we together can offer acceptable sacrifices unto him. And so, can you, can you be a spiritual house offering acceptable sacrifices unto him all by yourself? Uh, I, I don't think so. Here's something else we see, okay? I'm off of that now, mainly because if I keep going, the excitement level you have about it is going to probably short out the electronics. So, uh, here's, here's the second cool thing I want to show you. The fact that he's... Uh, He's this choice stone, but also that he became the very cornerstone. I, I don't know if you understand why this matters. So in, in ancient building, 
The cornerstone was the most important thing. It had to be set first. It set whether or not the building was going to be square. And whether or not that cornerstone was hewn correctly, set correctly, was that determined the whole rest of whether or not that building went well. And so Jesus is talked about as this cornerstone, the first set in place, the most important. But part of what's beautiful about it as well is you see this from, from this cornerstone of Christ, how they would then go out is they, then they would build, they would build, be able to build two walls out, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't just build one wall. Off of that cornerstone, you'd have two walls touching that would then go out and then they would connect to the other walls or however they were going to do it. But you'd have two walls going out to begin that structure uh, coming off of that cornerstone. And this, what this, what this represents and, and what th- this cornerstone language, which the, the, the Israelites of the day didn't quite g- grasp yet, is that what they were expecting was for G- a Messiah to come and just be added to Judaism. They, they thought a Messiah was going to come he was going to be kind of a military in his orientation. He was going to take the Romans out, kill all the oppressors, and then they were just going to keep, uh, keep going on with all of the Jewish laws, practices, rituals. They, they thought that's what it was going to look like. And then a Jewish state was just going to end up taking over everything. That was, that was mainly what was going on in their mind. And then, and then maybe they would invite Gentiles to come in and convert to what they were doing. The beauty of what God actually did is he set this cornerstone upon which these two walls could set, and they could go out in two different directions, and the glory of the gospel could go out to reach for the Gentiles, and it could also reach for the Jews at the very same time, and they're a part of that same building. And that, that echoes this idea we see in Galatians, there's no longer uh, slave or free, Jew or Greek, right? That, and we're going to get to this also in a second, uh, that all of the uh, arbitrary divisions that, that we tend to put up as humans are erased, um, and, and there's... There's, there's so much more in the fact that Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone that could be drawn out of that, but that's one of the things. Uh, and that's, how do I know that? Well, part of that, what I just explained to you is part of why it says that um, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone, and it was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, why were people offended? Why was it a stone of stumbling? Well, that's very much, it was... The Israelites were not happy about the fact that Jesus came and said stuff they didn't expect. Uh, many of them were excited when Paul started saying, hey, man, the Gentiles get to get in this thing too. Uh, they expected it to, it, it to just continue on the way it was, and, and maybe, maybe other, we could convert other people to come do what we're doing, but they weren't expecting the change, the, the paradigm shift, the transformational uh, kind of earth-shattering thing that happened when Jesus came, revealed the full character, glory, and goodness of God, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and said, by faith alone, uh, whoever will come to me can be saved. They didn't see that coming. And so Jesus, as the cornerstone of our faith, was a stumbling block for them. Uh, he became offensive. That's what caused many who were uh, of Israel to stumble. Uh, I, I want to... I I want to talk about this. So it says, uh, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Uh, you could read that as, They're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. The, the NASB, if you're using that along with me, you'll see the word doom is italicized. What that means is the translators in that, for the NASB, added that word to 
to help understand the sense of the passage. So if you take doom out, it says, and to this they were also appointed. Okay, so there's some, there's some ambiguity, and I'm not going to get totally into it. People, you know, you know what Christians like to do. We like to argue about verses. So there's a lot of different ways that people see this thing, and we're not going to get into all of them. But here, I just want to give you this. I think this part is pretty clear. It says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this, they were, to this doom they were also appointed. So the question is, is it, is it them stumbling that they were appointed to, or is it them being disobedient to the word that they were appointed to? It's, it's, it's one or the other. And if I'm not going to Greek nerd out on you here, but the, the, main, the main word that, that would be, this appointed word would be describing, it, it links you back to the stumbling, not the disobedient to the word. So why does that matter? He's like, he's like uh-oh, he's about to nerd out. No, I'm not going to do it, and I won't take long. I'm just, this, this really matters because our, <laughs> it's different if you're appointed, to be, you're appointed by God to be disobedient to the word, or if you're appointed by God to stumble and it may not seem like a big difference, it might look arbitrary, but, but it, it really matters because is, is God appointing people, is God ordaining people uh, to be disobedient to the word, or is he, is he appointing them to, to stumble? Is he allowing them to trip? And what is the purpose of that, right? So you might be thinking, either way, this makes God look mean. Whether they're appointed, I don't care, whether they're appointed to stumble or they're appointed to disobey the word, Either way, this, this verse, you know, I, I, I want a different translation. I want it to say something else. Well, any faithful translation is not going to say something different. But, but here's what I would submit to you. Um, is, is it unloving for God to allow Christ to be a stumbling block and, a, and a, something that, that causes offense for some people? Here, it's talking about the Israelites, but let's just talk about generally, broadly, who Jesus is, the gospel that he preaches, uh, the fact that that's a stumbling block to people. Is that, is that loving or unloving? Well, I was, trying to th- I was thinking about that, and, and what came to my mind is I, <clears throat> I had a phone call from a, a mama this week whose son is, uh, has been addicted to alcohol and I think some other various substances for a long time. His life is in shambles. Um, I, don't, I don't totally even remember how she got my number. I, it gets around that I've been willing to love and minister to addicts, and so I'll have parents call me or whoever else, family members, friends. And so this mama calls me and is talking to me about what it's like for her to love her son, who's an addict that continually takes her on an emotional roller coaster, who does good for a while and then doesn't. Uh, all of that, and you know, I'm relating to her, and I'm like, yeah, I've, I love addicts currently and have. I've, I've had to bury a few. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in, in terms of being in ministry. And uh, one thing she said, though, and so this, this is why this ties in what we're talking about. Is it unloving for God to set stumbling blocks in people's way? She said, I don't know what to do. I've ran out of options I just keep praying to God, Lord, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Now, is that mama unloving for praying to God, Lord, whatever it takes? What does she mean when she says that? If God's got to break him, if God's got to hurt him, if God's got to bruise him, 
in order to wake him up so that he doesn't die that, in that state and, and completely, utterly destroy his life uh, and, and forego eternity with God through those choices, this mama said, I, I, it doesn't matter to me what it takes. I just want to see him healed. I want to see him free. And so I guess my point to you is sometimes the gospel can be a stumbling block. Sometimes um, the gospel can be difficult for people to understand. Uh, sometimes it, it is straight offensive, and, and the Bible says that elsewhere. The gospel can be offensive. Um, but the reality is that offense, that stumbling is loving because here's the other option. And some of you, I don't think you're convinced yet. I hope this will help. So what are the options? God sets Jesus Christ and his gospel as a stumbling block to those who, and why would it be a stumbling block to you? Well, for a couple reasons. One, you think you're righteous yourself. Hearing that you're not good enough and you need a savior, the gospel then becomes a stumbling block to you. Is that right? That's, that's then offensive. Uh, if you realize that you really need a savior, then the gospel isn't that offensive. Um, if, if for various reasons you're just kind of plodding along in your life, you're distracted, you're head down, you're whatever, um, and, and, and you, you come up to something, you, you stumble and trip on something, if, if, if your whole life is, it, you are running headlong towards destruction, then anything tripping you up and slowing you down is actually an act of love. And so that's what God was doing for these Israelites, right? The, 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 the Jesus being set as this cornerstone, this stumbling block, them getting tripped up over Jesus was actually, that, that was for their good because it was making them think about the fact that, man, maybe this religious system, maybe this thinking that I've had, maybe this thought I, I had that I was righteous because of all my external good works or whatever, maybe that's not true. Now, whether or not they ended up ultimately responding correctly to that stumbling block is a different story. The question is, is it loving for God to trip you sometimes? Has God ever had to trip you? out of love, slow your roll, get you to stop and think about something that you wouldn't have otherwise. He has for me. He's had to slow me down. Uh, I've had to trip over many truths. Uh, and even though, you know, when I trip in public, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm hoping no one saw. So I'm looking around. And then, and then I'm like frustrated that it happened. And then if somebody saw, I'm normally embarrassed. So like the tripping itself is not an enjoyable process running your shins into the stumbling block of the gospel, but man, it's good for you. Um, you, need, you, need those, you need those bruises on your shins, and God is loving for giving them, loving for giving them to us. So uh, praise God for all of that. Um, that brings us to verse, verses 9 and 10. It says here, uh, but you, so he talks about the fact that they, they, uh, they were appointed to this, this stumbling, and that's because they're disobedient to the word. So that's what's going on with them. He says, but you, referring back to those who believe, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So these, uh, this, again, is a, is a quote from the Old Testament, but let's just think for a second. What, so this is where... This is where we've drilled down to um, what God sees in terms of our identity. How does God think about us? 
What, and so do we want to, we, we should take some time to align our thinking with why these words, there's so many things that could have been said here. Why is it that chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and a people for God's own possession is the way that uh, Peter describes us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, as a chosen race, there's so many implications to this, but one that makes sense, I think, right now in our cultural moment is that if we are a chosen race because of what Christ has done, because the blood of Jesus has erased all of the barriers, the artificial barriers that we tend to put up, then all, all those other false divisions should be vanquished in light of the fact that we are a chosen race. That means Jew, Greek, black, white, all of the distinctions that we like to look at and make, none of that matters. What is, they are superseded by the fact that we are brought together as one chosen race, those who belong to God. Uh, we are his children. And so any identity marker that we had based on nationality, culture, and it's not to say that we, all of those things have to be totally whitewashed, right? That we don't acknowledge that we have a nationality or we don't acknowledge that we have a cultural bend. Actually, God brings people with those different varieties together because when you put those together, you get a stronger spiritual house that does a better job uh, making sacrifices acceptable to God. That diversity is beautiful and powerful. And so we're not talking about... Um, you know, just trying to be colorblind or something like that, or ignoring that we all have cultural backgrounds. Uh, we want to bring those together, celebrate them, but see ourselves primarily first identity marker, not that I am uh, a hillbilly from a small town in Illinois. Like, that's the first thing I think about myself. The first thing I want to think about myself when it comes to my identity and, and what my race is, is that I'm a part of the chosen race of God. That race is by faith. That race what we, we, we share, man, that the royal blood of Christ runs through our veins by faith. And so uh, that makes, that, that's the first thing, first identity marker. Uh, first thing I think of when I think of uh, what race I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a son or daughter of God. That supersedes every other fact about me. And so all the other false divisions, the things that Satan uses to cause us to be at each other's throat, to any sense of superiority whatsoever, if you're going to claim Christ... If you're going to claim to follow Jesus, and then in, in even a hint of you believing you're somehow superior to someone else because of one of these other markers uh, of, of race or background or culture, uh, you've, you've totally missed the point. Superiority, racial division, all of that should be completely vanquished in light of the fact that those things for us have been swept up in the wave of God's mercy. We've all been put together, built into one house a glorious house for God's purposes. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, so we're a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Um, in the Old Testament, only priests got access to God. Now we all get to come close. Also, it's interesting that he says royal priesthood. Normally those two wouldn't go together. In the Old Testament, kings and priests were always separate. But Jesus came and he brought the two together. He was our king and also our priest. And so uh, that's why we, as we, we are taking on his identity by his righteousness through faith in his finished work, we also can be a royal priesthood in the fashion of, in the likeness of he whom we are being conformed into, his image, which is Jesus. So Jesus brought those together. So we are now sons and daughters of the king, as well as priests of this new and precious covenant. Uh, the reality is this priest language, many religions have priests or some equivalent. Uh, in most religions, priests are the guru and everyone else comes to them.
for vicarious connection to whatever deity or deities is being worshipped. Um, God has called each and every one of his children, each and every one of us. This, so this means you if you belong to Jesus. And this might be weird for you to think about. Maybe you've heard it before, you don't really know what it means. Here's, here's what God says about you. Every one of his children is called to be a part of the royal priesthood. You are to be a priest in this world, in this present age. A priest to the world. So what does that mean? What are we doing? Well, priests in the Old Testament, they were the stand between between God's perfect holy presence and the people. Okay, When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the temple, the thick veil that separated the tabernacle, uh, you know, it, was, it was the temple when Jesus died, it, it rips from top to bottom, signifying, symbolizing, showing us that the separation between us, us and God was done. Jesus was making us into a kingdom of priests. And so now our job as priests, new covenant, is to be constantly building bridges, inviting people to connect with the God who made them and loves them. Uh, and I just have to imagine, I, I am convinced that we as God's people, the children of God, many times and in many situations are not thinking of ourselves as priests presiding over this new covenant, that priests to this world. Because I think if we did take our position as priests of the new covenant seriously, if we remembered more often that we are representatives of our holy God to a lost and broken world, I think our conduct would be much different. Do you think before you speak that you are a priest of God? Like, that's, that's a big deal to me. It, it freaks me out on one side to one degree because some days I don't feel like a, a priest. <laughs> some days I, I feel like a, a vagabond. Um, but I'm thankful that whether or not I'm a priest uh, in, in the way that God has determined, uh, it, it isn't predicated on my behavior. It's, it's not given to me and pulled away by the day based on my performance. Um, even though I am frail and oftentimes given to sinful tendencies, uh, the grace of God allows me to repent. And I am, I, am, I am still called to that office of being a priest. I'm still called to be just like they were in the Old Testament. I'm supposed to be going into this world as a, as a go-between between people that don't know God, they don't trust him, they don't think he's loving, they don't know about his character, they, they, they're far from him, many of them don't know how to get to him, and I'm supposed to be out here as a priest, laying across every chasm that separates people from God, and saying, walk across my back, man, I'll be the bridge, but doing whatever I can to, to be an, an arbiter and an ambassador of this beautiful new covenant, this gospel. So, who are you in God? Well, you're a chosen race, but you're also a royal priesthood. May that sit upon us, friends. May it affect the way we think, act, live, respond to people. Uh, the next thing he says is that we're a holy nation. Friends, the peace that comes in this almost cannot be matched. Here's what that means. If we have a holy nation, we have a king. His name is Jesus, and his kingdom will stand in victory forever. Maybe you're better than me at tuning out uh, all of the insanity of the world and what's going on. I'm talking geopolitical issues. We got dudes lobbing bombs into the Pacific that seem like maybe there's a few screws loose. We got no idea. Then, we, then we're talking tough to them within our own country. We have so much division. It's, it's I mean, you'd want to talk about malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, man. That's a great 
uh, description of exactly what we have going on. And so there's all these reasons for fear and anxiety. The fact that we are a holy nation, it doesn't mean that we separate ourselves completely from any care for or interaction with uh, the, the, the place where we find ourselves, our nation and, and our time. But what it does mean is at the end of the day, and I'm not, I'm not hoping for this, but this is just the reality. Uh, if, if America just ceased to be, we still have a nation. We still are a nation. We still have a king. And ultimately, we're going to be okay. And so, it, again, it comes down to issues of first identity. Am, am I thankful to be born as an American? Absolutely. Primarily just because that's what God did, and so I know he has a purpose, so I'm thankful for whatever he's done. But that's not my first identity. My first identity is I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so that, that, that will color my speech, and that will affect the way I think. It will affect how much I freak out when I see all the dysfunction around me um, at multiple levels. And so I hope that's a peace to you. It, it, it speaks and breathes peace into my heart. The last thing the last identity marker, the last thing God says about how his vision for our identity and what he wants us, how he wants us to think about ourselves is that uh, we are a people for God's own possession. We're a people for God's own possession. Uh, the truth is we, we are special because we belong to God. If you think about a museum, a museum can be filled with all kinds of just kind of ordinary things, little knickknacks, somebody's hat or shoes or their cane or whatever from their, their life, and those things would have no significance or value whatsoever except for the fact that they maybe once belonged to someone famous, a famous general or a famous actor of, of time gone by or whatever. This item now is special because of who owned it. And we need to think of ourselves the same way, man. We, we are simply tools in the hand of a very, very special owner. And because simply he owns us, we have value. He sees us as valuable. And so we need to let that translate into the way we see ourselves. We can't sit and believe lies that we don't have value. That, that flies in the face of the gospel. For us to believe the lie that we don't have value means that um, Jesus is a fool for paying his precious blood for you. Is that right? It's not right, man. So tell Satan to take that mess elsewhere because you're not buying it. You do have value. It was proven at the cross, if nowhere else. The highest price that was ever paid for anything was paid for you, dear friend. God sees something in you even if you don't see it. And I don't care if your family don't see it. I don't care if all the people around you don't see it. God sees it. And he's in the business of drawing it up out of you. He sees you as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. He values you. And that's not the, none of that should make our head big because we're like some famous guy's hat in a museum. <laughs> Special because of who owns us, not because of intrinsically we got something going ourselves. Why has God done this? Here's the, here's the end question. Why has he done this, taken us from being scattered, dead, useless stones with no purpose. Isn't that what we were? Scattered out, dead, useless stones with no purpose, brought us together, making us into all the things listed above. This beautiful, this, this house he talks about, this spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why is he doing this? Why has he made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, a holy nation? Why, Why has he done these things? We have the answer. It's right here. 
it's so simple that we'll miss it if we're not careful. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the whole point. So that we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who made us valuable, who made us worth something, who breathed life into dead stones that could do nothing themselves, could accomplish nothing themselves, not for their own lives or for the helping of others. It's so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you might think, oh man, here we are again. This is like great commission stuff, right? Love God, love people, make disciples, right? It's that stuff again. And listen, man, like, you know, I, I, I don't know... I want to be like a newborn baby that wants the pure milk of the word, man. And this just keeps coming up. I'm not making it up. I'm not forcing us to go there. This is just what the text says over and over and over again. This is what matters. Why did God make us a chosen race? Why did he make us a, a holy priesthood? Why, why did he do these things? A holy nation, a royal priesthood. What, what, what's behind all of that? Why did he give value to that which would not have had value? Why has he made us alive instead of leaving us dead? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the Great Commission, friends. This is, this is what it is. He has saved us. He has made us into something so that we then can turn, declare his glory to the world, share his gospel with the world, proclaim his excellencies. Um, and, you know, acting like, acting like we could talk about that too much is like saying, you know, man, aren't you driving your car too much? It's like, man, that's what that's for. <laughs> You can leave it parked in the driveway if you want to, but I'm going to drive it, right? Like, it's, it's what it was built for. The whole purpose of all of, of what God has done is clear over and over again. It rings in an undeniable way. He has made us for this mission. He has done what he has done in us for this very mission, proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you. Hallelujah. Verse 10, he just lays some more motivation on for that very same premise. He says, For you once were not a people... But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, here's the question. I'm just going to lay it at your feet because I'm running out of time. Does that matter to you? Peter meant that for it to be motivation. What, what, how do I know that? Am I making that up? No. For, thank you. What's the point? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For, because... You once were not a people, but now you are the people, the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so on the days when it's hard, friends, on the days when you feel like doing your own thing, on the days when being about proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light doesn't seem like first priority, please come back to this because Peter thought this should matter to us, that we once were not a people. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to you that you once had no tribe? You had no people. You were scattered even if you thought you did. All the things that you were, you were connected to and because they're all going to burn up and be nothing. But for eternity, we are a people bound by the blood of Christ and it'll never be taken away from us. Woo! Does that make you want to proclaim somebody's excellencies? His name is Jesus. He said once you had, once you had no mercy, man, once you were done, you, were, you had no hope. But now you've received mercy. So go proclaim the excellencies of the one who's bestowed that mercy to you. That should, dear friend, that should 
stir something in you, and it should motivate you. All, all of this, God's, God's vision for our identity, what he's done with us as a people, what he's done for us in giving us his mercy, all of these things should lead us to this overall hinge point and premise, the point of our existence now that we belong to Jesus is that we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. That's what it's about. It's what we're, it's what we're for. How do we do that? Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. So part of how we proclaim um, the excellencies of him who has called us is, is simply with, with our mouths, with the preaching of the gospel, with being bold about sharing the fact that we've been saved by grace and that that uh, beautiful grace is available by faith to others. That's part of how we proclaim his excellencies. We just talk about how good God is. Uh, uh, Revelation says that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Some of proclaiming his excellencies is just being quick, like, like having a sword and a sheath, man. You can draw your testimony out. If someone gives you 15 seconds at the cash register, you got a 15-second version that you can get down with them and let them know how much Jesus has done in your life. Praise God. I, I had Carol locked down for 30 seconds at Kroger yesterday. She got it. She got the 30-second version, man. I've got a 15-second, a 30-second. If I think I've got a minute, I've got that version, man. And I'm just telling you, you can proclaim his excellencies with your mouth through just preaching the truth of the gospel and, and, and letting it reflect through the, the story of your life. But another way is when we actually live as we are, aliens and strangers, and we abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. Sin and fleshly lusts are always trying to get us through deception distraction, and they always lead to devastation. What does he say? Fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Most of the time we think of fleshly lusts as things that we're denying ourselves because Jesus wants us to, uh, and it's just it's a disciplined thing, and, 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 and we're doing it because we, we want to obey him. A lot of times we don't have the vision to be able to see Every one of those fleshly lusts actually is waging war against your soul. Every distraction, every deception is leading to and working towards a singular goal, and that's your destruction. And so I think if we understood those things, we would flirt less with sin, right? Because sometimes it's like, man, I miss that. Sometimes it's like, whoo, that looks good. Listen, um, you know, it's like, it's like pulling a cobra out of one of them weird little baskets over there and, and, and waving it around. Our friends down in Kentucky be doing that, and a bunch of their pastors are dead, okay? The, the rattlesnake dancers, don't do that. That's dumb. That's actually a great analogy for playing with sin, okay? Don't test God. Don't dance with rattlesnakes. But also, don't play with your sin, man. Put it to death. We, we, don't, we don't mess with it. We don't, we don't invite it in. We don't, uh, we don't flirt with it. it. It's deception, distraction, always leads to devastation. It's making war against your soul. And part of how we proclaim uh, the excellencies of he who called us into his marvelous light out of darkness is by not giving in to fleshly lust. You don't have to try to be a stranger or an alien. You just are. Every single time you deny the flesh, every single time you don't jump into hypocrisy, malice, and slander with everybody else, every single time that you choose to deny your flesh uh, and, and, and serve God instead, those of you that uh, are, are not yet married and, and have chosen to uh, save the, the beautiful gift of sex for inside of the beautiful boundaries of marriage that God has given us, and you tell people about that that don't believe, they think you're nuts. It's 2017, what are you doing? 
You got to taste the milk before you buy the cow. No, man, you're a fool and you don't really understand how things work. That's why you think that. And every time you do that, it wages war against your soul and leads to your destruction. It's pain and hurt for you. So when we, we can, with our mouths, proclaim his excellencies, but also when we abstain from fleshly lusts, and, and I can tell you, I can promise you he's still in this vein of thought. He's still thinking. Why does he say, beloved, I urge you as aliens uh, to abstain from fleshly lusts? He's still thinking about proclaiming the excellencies of him. Why do I say that? Because then he makes it obvious in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, right? So now he's thinking about how our behavior, how we, our obedience or lack of obedience to God, how it affects those who witness it. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is widely agreed upon to be uh, the great white throne judgment, Jesus coming. Uh, and, and here's the reality, friends. Here's, here's what he's actually saying. He kind of says it in a, a little bit of a roundabout way, but here's the point. He's saying, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Don't fall into the, 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 the fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Do this because as you do that and people observe the, the oddity of somebody denying themselves, instead obeying God, the wisdom and, and the, the beauty that that reflects, as they, as they witness that, um, that they may observe, observe your good deeds, and as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. The only people glorifying God on the day of visitation when Jesus comes for judgment is those that have come to believe. Everybody's going to bow their knee, make no mistake, but those that have put faith in Christ are going to bow their knee in joy. Those that have refused to do so are going to bow their knee in terror. And so the only ones glorifying God on the day of visitation are people that have come to know Christ. And what he's saying right here is you can proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you out of darkness and into light by the way you live. You can preach a gospel with your actions. You need both. Let's, let's not get that out of balance. And he says both. He says plainly proclaim them, but he also says live a life that backs it up. And you put all that together, people will come to know Christ as a result of God will use you to affect people's eternity. And that way, on that day, they're bowing out of joy instead of bowing out of fear. Praise God that he would allow us frail and, and with as much tendency as we have to fail at these things, that he allows us to be a part of what he's doing. He's allowing us to participate in the greatest rescue mission ever undertaken. Thank you, God. We must proclaim his excellencies, friends, both in word and indeed. May we be a people who have a ravenous hunger for God's word. As newborn babies desire and depend on milk for survival, may we desire and depend on God's word. May we rise to our calling by the power of God's spirit to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. May we fulfill our destiny proclaiming powerfully the excellencies of he who rescued us from eternal darkness. For his glory and our good, amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that you have a vision of who we are, that you have an opinion about who we are. Lord, we confess that oftentimes the way we see ourselves doesn't line up with the way you see us. And so we repent for that. We ask you, God, by the power of your spirit to change those things. 
Lord, sometimes we see ourselves more as a failure. Sometimes we see ourselves more as, as the way that uh, Satan and our enemies try to convince us we are. Lord, may we run to your word. May we see that, that you have called us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for your own possession. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us an identity. May we embrace it. May it be our first and, and, and the most prevalent thing we think about when we think about who we are, that we belong to you as a special possession, that we are your children, that we are royal because we're your sons and daughters, that we're priests because we've been brought in, given the righteousness of Christ and allowed to be ambassadors, sharing the beautiful truth of the gospel with as many people as possible. Thank you, Lord, for uh, a solid, beautiful identity in you. Lord, may, may these things, may these truths crush every lie that any person within the sound of my voice has believed about themselves. I know there are so many falsehoods that have cemented themselves in the hearts and minds of people. They don't see themselves as a chosen race. They don't see themselves as a royal priest or part of a holy nation. That's, that's not the way they think about themselves. And God, I just ask that you would conform their thinking to the truth of your word. God, help us, please to rejoice so much in who we are in you, to rejoice so much in the fact that once we were not a people, but you've made us a people, Lord, may it cause for us a, a, an excitement uh, in proclaiming your excellencies. Lord, it's, it's, not, it's not a job to be done. It's a privilege we get to participate in that we get to declare how wonderful and perfect and faithful and holy and loving and magnificent you really are. Thank you that you've allowed us in to do that. Thank you that we get to be a part. Thank you, oh God. We love you. Lord, help us to be bold with our mouths in proclaiming your truth. God, help us to be equally bold in living our lives, fighting by the power of your spirit against those, those sins and those lusts that wage war against our soul. May we put them down, put them to death, May you be glorified as we do that. May all those that would observe our lives, Lord, may, they, may their curiosity be piqued. May they see that there's something different. May all this, Lord, be to your glory and yours alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.